Welcome to another episode of What's New in Wagyu. It's Stephen and Lane again. And today we're going to move on to the second edition of early 1970 importation bulls. And we're going to cover a little bit about, about judo. We're going to talk a little bit about feed. We're going to talk a little bit about the butcher shop. And then we'll end it all off with some observations we've seen uh, from some of judo's progeny that have done okay in the system um, we're seeing today. So first of all, I'm going to welcome Lane to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. It's always fun. And again, Lane, for these, are, he, his job is mainly to keep us all on track so that we don't scurry down the rabbit hole of information and forget what we're supposed to be covering. So are you, are you up to the challenge? Yeah, I think so. I, uh, had to decipher your hieroglyphics here. That's right. But I think, uh, we reviewed them. I think we on program now. So the hard part is for a lot of people is you've got to have something to talk about every week. That's, that's hard. Sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to stay on topic. It, it, that's part of the podcasting game. And as you get better at it, it becomes easier. Uh, when we first started, it was kind of hard. Now it's it's pretty, pretty easily done um, in the time that we have. So let's start off by talking about judo. Judo was imported in the 70s with Rusha. Uh, they came over together along with Mount Fuji and Mazda. Judo is an interesting bull to me because he is very, very different in structure than any of the other Red Bulls, even the 94 importations. And he gives a very distinctive head to your animals. I can usually pick a judo son or daughter, or even a grandson out of a, out of a group fairly quickly because of the head shape, especially. And, and I found that that head shape is really good. If you're really worried about having calves that are going to be too hard to birth, he really shrinks that head shape down. And sometimes when you see pictures of his offspring, or even his grandsons, they have these big old bodies and itty-bitty heads. Yeah, and that's been interesting. We found that with uh, out in our herd. We've had, Judel has given us some of our biggest calves, and we don't really like big calves because they're hard on moms. Oh, man. But because of the head shape and things, they did okay. But we had a hun- oh, some calves over 100 pounds. Right, and... and- and the interesting thing is, is we have a, we've used a son and a and a daughter. Uh, the daughter is our our Rusha Judo daughter, our, our Rusha Judo cow's mom, and her full brother. And they give completely different calves. Um, the Rusha Judo, she came out about oh mid mid seventies in weight, and Judo forty seven. His his offspring have been huge um with everything we've bred them to even yeah. smaller framed animals we have these birth rates that are that creeped up on us pretty high we don't own that bull but we had access to the semen early on before he was sold and i can tell you that the animals look good once you get them going but i i really struggle having 100 pound calves and in this industry you should never keep a calf over 100 pounds like you either need to castrate it or send it to the commercial world because it, it's gonna you're gonna hurt somebody by giving them an animal that drops big calves. You know, Wagyu are not designed to drop hundred pound calves. Yeah, if you have them in the commercial program with uh, putting 
semen in to bigger cows? Probably not a well, yeah, she, like, not, like not the, a not a both problem all, at all. Right, all three of the hundred plus pound calves we had out of out of him out of that judo son, um, they were all on big black Angus cows. They didn't have any problems delivering them, but if they would have been on wagyu cows, we'd have been we'd have been in trouble, especially heifers. Yeah, first first second year heifers. Oh that'd man, be, that'd be terrible. And then and then you have the whole problem. You you do that one time to a heifer, and sometimes they don't want to ever take care of a calf again. It's such a traumatic, painful experience that they'll just not want to feed a calf. They'll be done. Yeah. So the one of the other problems you run into with judo is is he is a small frame bull, right? Like Correct. like the original judo, the importation judo is a small frame bull, and what's ever what everybody's done is that they've used that small frame to to shrink down cattle. Okay. So we're having these huge birth weights, but we're not having big, big back end. Okay. You know, we get all of our size up front and none of it where we need it at the feedlot. And and I like Judo. I think that that he's one of the better marbling bulls out there. There is a couple of research papers that were done. They were done in the mid-90s. I'll post them on the site. Um, that shows that when Judo and Mount Fuji and, and Mazda and all of them were compared side by side, that Judo really was the bull that had some of the finest marbling and some of the, some of the best tenderness scores and marbling scores. And the problem is everybody's so shied away from him because of his F11 status and the fact that he's from the seventies. And I agree, you don't need to go back and reinvent the wheel. That's what a lot of people are trying to do right now. We don't need to do it. We need to be moving forward. You can't, you can't reinvent the wheel and reinvent the wheel and reinvent the wheel and then expect to have something at the end. I mean, there are those breeders out there, right, Steve, that uh, the classic, the old this old strains and things, that's kind of where that's they're... What, that's what they do, right? Like, right. like we, know, we know people in almost every breed like that. Yeah. Check like, out Wally, Wally, right? Wally up in Montana, yeah. right? Wally is one of the premier shorthorn breeders in the nation. Here's he, the deal. He won't breed to anything newer than 1978. And that's the kind of cattle that he has. And and that's, they call it a classic, a heritage shorthorn breeder is what they call that. Well, the Wagyu industry doesn't have those. You have people who are unwilling to move forward. And then you have everyone else who just does and follows whatever the greatest fad is. And then you have the weirdos like us that have gone out and we've collected data and we've done the things necessary to make better cattle each generation. And that's kind of a throwback to your Hereford Oh, yeah. in the Hereford industry, correct? Right. Right. If you, if you, when you're in the Angus or Hereford world, if you're not on the cutting edge and going forward, you're, you're not making any money. So you'd step in, let's just say we step into the, back into the Hereford industry, right? Correct. I could probably do okay with some of the stuff I've got saved in a semen tank as a good base. But I sure as heck would have to come forward with some outstanding new bulls like Bel Air or, or Monty or any of those just so that I could get back into the game well enough to sell bulls on a regular basis. Okay, that makes sense. This industry, the problem is, is 90% of the people in this industry, I feel, are new breeders or inexperienced breeders. Okay. You have 10% that have been around for a long time and you've got, you know, out of that 10%, 3 or 4% of them that are, they're just older people like you, Lane. You know how it is sometimes getting stuck into that, that old cyclical this is what I do, this is how I do it yeah. scenario. We're mostly like that, right? Right, right. And, and you know what? We, we appreciate that at the butcher shop because we, we do things different than a lot of the new modern butchers are doing. We have, we have old young people right. in attitude and 
young old people trying right. to <laughs> guide the way. And and what's done for us is is we offer things in our butcher shop that a lot of people don't get in the other butcher shops around us. You know, Lane went back to I feel like a, a mid eighties cut sheet when we did it, and the labeling's about mid eighties. I feel like everything but the wagyu, but but our overall cut sheet I feel is something similar you would have seen in the eighties. Yeah, I think so. You know, and and our clientele base here is a lot of older gentlemen and older women. So they appreciate it. They know exactly what these things are, and they've missed seeing them on their packages in their freezer. So the problem is, guys, is we're not taking the necessary steps forward. These bulls are all dead. Why are we continuing to breed back to them all the time? Like, like they're, in the last 30 years, there had to have been something better that's come along that you want to breed to. Is a lot of that because of... Our selection, we don't have the selection and the gene um, diversity as, but that's, say... But that's why we should be doing it, though. Japan. I know. That's why we should be doing this. That's why we should be moving forward and not breeding back to the same bulls. That's why the, every generation that comes is an important thing. The problem in this industry is, is everybody that has a... That nobody cuts bulls. Everybody keeps every bull out there. They sell them for a bunch of money. Whether a bunch of money to use five thousand or twenty thousand or whatever, they, they 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 sell them for a substantial amount of money, but they're not doing the things necessary to progress this industry forward. It is extremely rare for us to go back to original bulls. When we do, there is always a purpose behind it. Correct. There's a cow I like. There's something I like about the cow. There's something I'd like to see to bring forward. Sometimes it's just because it's cool. But I have a plan every time we go back to the original genetics. And I've got a bunch of them. Like, I'm not one of the people that have to go out and find them. I've got a bunch of them sitting in our tanks that I could use at any point in time, but we don't because there's not a need. If that bull has not produced at least three sons better than himself, you're not doing anything better. You look at the original bulls, right? Rushan Judo. Judo, I know of, has two good sons, really good sons. And that's Ichiro Judo and, and 47. And, and 47 might give you some big calves, but structurally, they are very good calves. They're very hard-footed, and the commercial cattleman loves them. Right? We took Where did we take that 47 son to? Down to a commercial cattle group. Yes, we did. We're gonna, they're going to go put him out on the, on the rough desert of Utah, and that's where he's going to live. He's sure. going to be expected to make his own way, do the things he needs to do, and be a productive bull. That's what you get when you come back and you breed to good judo sons. Okay. The problem is, is when we keep going backwards and going to the original judo, we're not expanding that, that line out. We're just going back to judo because it's available. And then the semen gets more and more expensive and people cry about it, but heck, they're doing it to themselves. Why aren't people using judo Ichiro? Why aren't they using 47? Why aren't they buying uh, an A46 cow, a judo 46 daughter or son and moving forward i can't answer the question i've asked it myself a hundred times yeah i and then people need to figure out what they want you just can't breed to whatever bulls out there well you can you can breed to whatever you want oh yeah but if you don't have people do but if you don't have a breeding strategy how does that work like you said, a lot of these people are new to the industry and things, and 
you know, they don't have the background, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the where to, and they don't ask the right questions to the people, the resources that they may have. Well, and that's the problem, right? The Wagyu industry is the only industry I've ever been in in my life that stagnates on purpose. Everything else I do in my life, if you were to stagnate like the Wagyu industry does, you would be out of business. Every other cattle breed in the, in, in the country right now, you know, granted there's some small niche breedings, and, but we're talking mainstream breedings. That's what Wagyu is becoming, a mainstream breed. Okay. That hasn't evolved, has always failed. Look at the difference when you were, when you were starting out first butchering, Lane. Who, what was, the, what was the, the best animals you could get? As far, oh. What was 80% of the beef you brought into the, to a butcher shop back then? Uh, they were Hereford. They were all Hereford. Angus wasn't a thing. Not, not, not much. It wasn't as uh, got popular until they pushed uh, box beef and certified Angus, right? Right. So what happened in the Hereford world is everybody had a hold of the top of the market, right? Hereford's the best. It's the best animal around. That's all you'll ever see. And then they did one import, one terrible thing. They stopped evolving. And then here comes this nice up and starter called CAB, Certified Angus Beef. They threw a bunch of money into marketing that nobody had done yet. And what happened? How hard is it to find Hereford Lane in your grocery store? Yeah, it's really hard. And that's just over a 10, 15 year period. Yeah, I would say, I would say it's probably about 10% of what we butcher less. Right. Out there. Now, now I'm going to relate this back to Wagyu. If we continue to breed back to these original bulls and, 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 not make any forward progress, we're just going to be the Hereford of, of the American, you know, of the 2000s. Right. And the problem is, is they're going to take our bulls. They're going to take our genetics. They're going to influx them into these commercial herds. And then what are you going to have at the end? You're going to have a Wagyu that's not worth as much because they've now saturated the market because we weren't smart enough to regulate it and use it to our advantage. Why do you think that we do the exclusionary zone lane? To help protect the the breed and the genetics out there, right? To keep it going, right? Right. We have a we have a philosophy here. We very rarely sell much to anybody within the two hundred mile circle from the house, from the home place. We do that for a reason. One, people will bring other animals in and learn that that what they bought was not what they were sold. But two, we're able to have a higher market value for our F one producers. We sell bulls to. Than anyone else. If we didn't do that, I know a lot of people are moving in right now and near us and they've got Wagyu herds, but they're not good Wagyu herds. They're not herds that will go out and people will be like, oh, those are impressive animals. Correct. The problem is, is the original animals weren't, they weren't designed for American market. They were designed for the Japanese market. So they're going to be small to moderate framed. They're going to not have near as many rib eyes. They're not going to have near as many you know, tenderloin pieces. They're going to have a little itty bum that doesn't do us any good when, we, when it comes to grinding rounds or round roast or anything like that. So we have taken that, and through breeding, we have added what, Lane? We've added weight to our hinds. We've added length to our ribs, our New Yorks. We've added length to our tenderloins. And we've retained the stockiness of the front quarter. Right. 
And and the reason the only way you can do that is to use bulls down the line. You can't use original bulls to build a hind end. You just can't do it. So what we did is we went and found cows and bulls that had good hind quarters. They may have been lacking something else. And then we would breed them to, to an animal that comparatively matched them. So if we knew they were weak in, weak in, in spring a rib, we bred them to a big spring rib cow. And then that calf is what we wanted. We didn't want the original, but we wanted the calf. Right. So what people are forgetting is, is that breeding is a science. It's a skill. And you have to practice it or you're going to not have it. And you can only practice it by looking at traits and deciding what you want. And then... And actually looking at animals. And it may take you three or four or five generations of calves from that original pairing and keep breeding to what we want to get to. But sooner, hopefully than later, we get what we want. And we've been pretty fortunate because you know what you're looking for. Well, and we're using embryo transfer, right? Correct. So we can take that bell curve we talked about last week, and we can pick the best one of that bell curve every time. And that's the animal we rally around. That's the animal we, we keep, we retain, we move into the next step so that we can build the animal that we want. I don't know how many of you are old enough to know what the million dollar man was. Yeah. If you don't, you need to go hang out with some cool people and watch it or find it on YouTube, right? So in The Million Dollar Man, what did they redo for him, Lane? Well, they made made everything better than it was through science, right? Through science, right? So in today's world, we have technologies and things like embryo transfer. So we're making cattle better every generation, or we should be. Every single every single generation, we should be striving to make these animals better. Okay, so we have. You've told me a lot of times that the average wagyu herd, in the United States, is maybe three cows, maybe four three, cows. Three to a, ten is what they say, and a bull. Yep. Sometimes it's three bulls and two cows, but it is what uh, it is, right? And so these folks that have three bulls and Four cows. Right. And uh, their stock isn't very good in the first place. AI. If you, if, you, if you, here's the problem, Lane. If you go and tell somebody their stock isn't good, what happens every time I do it? You have a fist fight almost. Pretty much. Yeah. Because people have spent a lot of money to get animals, and sometimes they buy animals because they don't know. They've been told something. They've been led on a wild goose chase but they've invested the money in these animals and they feel like they're a good animal because they spent the money to get them right that's correct so they first of all people need to really step back and evaluate what they have that's the biggest thing and do it honestly but they don't know what they have that's that's the problem that's the problem and most people don't don't want to have somebody come and tell them that they have something or don't because they know they have something because they spent a lot of money on it like, these are the consistent conversations that we run into all the time, right, Lane? Well, all I spent a lot of money on this animal. It's a good one. Well, genetically, it's not a good one. Phenotypically, it's not a good one. Structurally, it's not a good one. Visually, it's not a good one. So you know what that tells me most of the time? You didn't get a good one, and then they get mad. So if you're going to be that person, that you have an animal and it's good just because you spent a lot of money on it, do me a favor. Don't buy a bull. Artificial insemination. That's what you should be doing. 
And then you should be finding somebody that'll help you build the traits you want. So how do they go about finding these people with these animals with the trait they want? Well, you've got to get into the to the breed, give some people some calls, talk to people. That's a big one. Don't just talk to one person and base your whole herd around it. That's retarded. Okay. You know, there's enough breeders out there. Pick up the damn breeder's log and start start calling people. Can the association help with that? The association has a long ways to go, Lane. But I mean, no, can they put you in? They could. They've got they've got all the resources, and they may be able to help to send you to their resource page where you can look up everybody's stuff yourself anyway. But but that's the other problem. We have an industry that that doesn't want to move forward, right? So from judo, we're talking in the seventies. This this association has not moved forward since the inception of it in the nineties. We still do the same dumb things over and over again. We haven't we haven't gone to the USDA. We haven't gone to the USDA and been like, hey, we need to have a better grading program. Let me tell you something. The USDA will do it. They they're just waiting for somebody to do it for them. Or ask them to do it. Or allow them in to do it. You know, the association is so lacking in leadership right now that, that that's the problem. You, you Nobody is looking out for the breed. Everybody's looking out for their own businesses. And, and it happens in a lot of things. We, me and Lane are involved in a lot of different things other than just this. And it's something that's really concentric across the whole thing. Everybody's worried about their own business rather than what they're supposed to be worried about, which is the breed as a whole. This is going to be interesting to see the comments on this uh, podcast. We've made new guys mad. We made the association mad. We made <laughs> well, and, and, and here's the problem: I don't. I'm to the point in my life and in my breeding that I don't care. Yeah, most of my stuff's registered in Australia anymore, anyway. Okay. We keep very little stuff in the American Association, just enough that if we need to capture a DNA sample, we do. Correct. So, you know, and, and the Australians, they don't have, they have their own problems, right? Yeah. Just because you have EBVs doesn't mean they're good. Correct. I'm looking at EVBs a lot of times right now, and they change weekly. And that tells me that, that the person that inputted the original information wasn't always honest about it. So here's the deal. No matter what association you're part of, there's a problem. Okay. We've got an association in this country that's that's being sued and filing bankruptcy. We've got an association in the American Wagyu Association that kind of stagnates. And they don't really like the red crowd, the red Wagyu crowd, but they don't really like the black Wagyu crowd. But they, it just, it's just a weird hodgepodge of things right now. Right. And then, then when they go to their elections, and it's all of them, when they go to their elections, they do the same damn thing over and over again. Instead of choosing progressive breeders or trying to get a progressive breeder to come in and, and sit on their boards, they pick the same old boys over and over again. And that's fine. Like, if that's how you want to run your association, that's fine. There's a reason that we're, we're tri-registered, right? Because I don't have to rely on one registration to make my stuff work. I can sell to anybody. There you go. And Judo, that's the problem. He is one of the few bulls that you can do that with. Right? doesn't matter right. whether you breed in, you want to breed in America, in Australia, or any of that. Judo, Ruchal, the 90s bulls, some of their offspring, you know, most of them can be tri-registered. People really need to take a step back, and they need to figure out exactly what they're going to do and why they're going to do it. The other issue, Lane, that, that's becoming more and more apparent to me every week is that people are buying stuff because they heard that Wagyu are all, you know, marble so well but breeders are not making sure they're pairing their animals 
with their buyers. There you go. Do you think I would ever have sent a, a bull down to Utah to live on the desert that I didn't know it, it was capable of doing that? You would not. And we took them two bulls, right? We took them a bull for their, their milk cow and their, their home cows. Mm-hmm. And we took them a bull down for their range animals. Correct. And I matched each bull to the needs of, the, of, of what it was going to be living in. And if you're unable to do that, we, you really need to take a step back and look at what you're doing and try to figure out how you can best match your animal with your client to your client. There you go. Look at when we sell Wagyu as a whole, Lane, when we kill them. We match our clients with the animal. With the animal. I never let the client pick the animal. Mm-hmm. I always match them, and I don't match them until after I've seen what it looks like. We're going in there today to to split a carcass, split a carcass, and examine how we want to to market it. Right. We know that we have half of it gone. Right. And we're probably another quarter, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But we're but we aren't sure until we look and see. We might end up having this one come to our homes. Right. And, and that happens. It happens. You know, and this animal's been on eight feed for 800 days, just like the last one. But due to some extra help me and Lane got, we ended up killing an animal that I would have liked to see sit for another 50 to 100 days on feed. Yeah. I think it would be a better animal at 900 days rather than 800 days. And really, that's $3,500 in feed. It's still doable for what the prices we're asking for, right? Exactly. I think that it will be okay. I do have some concerns about it because it's it's under a thousand pounds on hanging. Yeah. But its age is right. Its its structure was mostly there. It was my bottom three of the three I wanted killed. And it's it's round is full. It's round is full. Um and and I know where it's going, so it might work. Here's the other thing, guys. And, and I've been getting a lot of contact out of Japan lately from, from scientists. It's kind of interesting when you have a podcast, the people that come out of the woodwork to come visit and talk to you. Um, I have always stated that I would rather have an animal at a BMS 8 or 9 with a low-fat melting point than a BMS 10 animal 11 or 12 with a higher fat melting point. I've always stated We've that. We've always, that's always been our strategy. In Japan, a lot of times I'm coming to learn from numerous people that most breeders, well, most breeders and most feeders shoot for an A4 carcass with an extremely low fat melting point. We're talking, you know, mid 80s if they can or lower. Only the Americans and the foreigners are searching for this a5 magic right and the funny part is is it's not as tender or flavorful because of the melting point being higher correct so now we're still you step back and you think well i'm a wagyu breeder right correct i know judo is going to give me some amazing fineness and marbling in my red animals right correct I would inject judo into my animals when my coarse fat was getting thick that's when i know i need some judo in it so we, we, we inject judo in there, right? Correct. And we get our fines to come back. Well, the finer the amount of fat is, the lower the melting point of that fat. We've learned it. We've seen it. We've tried it. We've tested it. We've documented it. And we've documented it. 
So, if you were wanting to give your people an experience of a lifetime, I will tell you right now, you will be better off at an 8 or a 9 with an 85 to 90 degree fat melting point than you ever will being a 10 or a 11 or a 12 with a 92 degree fat melting point. And usually when there's that much fat in them, they're actually going to be like 96, 97, 99. Right, right. We've They're never, gonna be on the upper. We, we, We're gonna we, be on we've, the upper We've scale. taken them there. We've been there. We've tested it out. It's always a higher melting point. So I'm changing my breeding strategy right now because of numerous papers I've been sent. I've talked to a couple doctors out of you know PhDs out of Hokkaido, and and we had this discussion. And I'm going to start breeding a little different and start to breed around. I don't need the best marbling animal out there, Lane but I damn sure need one that has a good low fat melting point. So I understand there may be a trip to Japan in our future. Yeah, that, that's up on that's up on the list. That That's the future of what we're going to do because I'm at the point now where we've gathered enough data and I've made enough contacts that I'd like to go sit down in an, in an academic atmosphere and, and let them go through it and then us have a, a conversation on what is really the most important trait in Wagyu. And the interesting thing to me is, is I look at everything from a business point of view. You know, I've got an advanced degree in accounting. I've taught college in accounting. I've been a professor. I understand that portion of it. Um, I never wanted, I never did it full time because I thought academia was a place to get lost if you didn't know how to do your job, but it was a good place to go and talk, right? It was a good place to go influence future accountants, um, in business protocol with, with real business rather than make-believe money. Um, academics take it from a different standpoint of this is the data. We want to have the best, safest, healthiest product, but we don't care what it costs. That, that's academia for you, right, Lane? Right. Look at what your kid's doing. Yeah, I know. Right? Like, like it, he gets to have all the money he ever wants to do a project but nobody's looking about how to do it the most cost-effective way, right? Correct. So with the advent of these these new enlightenments that we've got and new connections that we've made, we're going to start um, putting together essentially, well, essentially a thesis is what it'll be, a dissertational effect for a paper, for a long-term journal that will come from our side of the business and their side of academia. And we're going to try to blend it together to to create one paper that shows the cost margin benefit of lower melting fat point cows, not only in Japan, but in Australia and America. So that the benefits, the benefit of that is extremely important for whoever's in this way good business right. and want and want to take it forward and and want to be able to use some sourceable data an scd test will cost you 200 bucks on the open market a gh test and an scd test together will be 200 bucks the association will only do an scd test well hell you could go get it synthesized and send it out to japan for 200 a test cost you 50 bucks to synthesize it at whatever land grant university you're by they'll put it in a digital copy ship it out to japan for you and they'll send it back to you that's the reality. But because people aren't taught this and people are, are sheep most of the time, they don't, tr- 
try to find that cutting edge. Every day I wake up, I try to find something new that puts us out on the cutting edge of the industry. And it gets me in trouble sometimes. I say mean shit to people all the time. People say mean shit about me all the time. I don't care. I am a big boy. This isn't my first business. A lot of these people I feel like that are throwing, that are calling names and throwing shit, this is their first real business. They may have another business, but this is the first real business they've ever had to be part of. So that's the problem, Lane. In this industry, we are stuck in the past. And, and like I said, there's certain things, Lane, I think are great. I love that most wag you have good feet. Isn't that wonderful? Right. I don't, you don't have to worry about it. I love that most wag you don't have cancer problems. They don't have, they don't have hoof rot issues. They don't have, you know, a lot of genetic problems. Because evolution in, in cattle breeding is done fast in only one way. And do you know what that is, Lane? What's that? Line breeding. And when it fails, we call it inbreeding. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but that's how you, you, you get certain traits passed through so fast. Right. I'm not, I've, got a, I've got a couple cows that are full sibling matings. We do. It is what it is. Like, okay. I did it on purpose. I'm not going to excuse the matter. I was trying to get something that I got. Now, his four other siblings that didn't make it and went to the feedlot, sorry, you didn't make the deal. Yeah, they didn't make the curve, did they? They didn't make the curve, but the one that did... He's had, pretty happy. ...is pretty happy, and he and he can pass on his genetic potential now that's synthesized down into a, in a single package. Everybody starts talking about Judo and Rusha being gone, right? And, and the semen's so narrow and so small. There's a lot of semen out there, guys. But here's the deal. If you really want a good Judo son, you know what you do, Lane? You go find yourself a Judo daughter... And then you go find yourself a judo son, and you breed them together. There you go. You will synthesize down judo, plus mm -hmm. whatever else you get benefits from their female side. That's way better than going and spending three grand on one straw judo, or $20,000 on a straw rusha. And the problem is, though, nobody's, nobody's doing this. Me, myself, we're not doing this, but guys, uh, I've got enough semen that I bought it under $50 a straw that I can do what I want for years. My kids can breed to this. We could breed our whole herd year after year. We, we wouldn't have to put another straw of semen in that tank. No. And we'd be able to take care of three generations of wolves. Yeah, I've got a 40,000 unit spinner full. Yeah. That's not counting the tanks that are sitting by it. Correct. That are also full. Full, I know. And, and when I got into this industry, I learned something very early from my granddad. So when I came about in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, my granddad had already been breeding world-class Hereford cattle for 30 years. And you know what he told me, Lane? What's that? He goes, buy every piece of genetic you can as early as you can so you can get it as cheap as you can. There you go. And that's what we did. What we we did. jumped in. I looked out. I saw that all the original bulls were available. I went and bought hundreds of straws of each of them, put them in the tank. I went and found their best sons, bought hundreds of straws of each of them, put them in the tank. Put them in the tank. Then I went out and found their sons, which is where bulls like Master Chef came from. You know, those, you know, Kalinga Red Stars, you know, those third generation bulls. And I went and bought hundreds of straws 
and put them away. And then I started making my own bulls. And people are like, well, you can sell them now. Well, no, no, I can't because I don't sell stuff like that. I'll sell you a calf. More than happy to sell you a bull or half a calf. But I'm not going to sell you semen and embryos. Yeah. Now, I do make embryos every year. Yes, we do. For sale. Yes, we do. They are designed breedings that, that are very high-end breedings. Mm-hmm. But they do give everybody a way to get a good calf. At a you know, a respectable price mm-hmm. on an animal that we've tested and proven. And people complain every day that they're eleven hundred dollars an embryo. Well, go out and buy that eight hundred dollar embryo and see what you get. Because we know what we are giving you. Not everybody can say that. And what happens if sometimes those embryos don't take, Steve? What do you do? Um, so if you buy three and you put them in and you call, you have a, you have a good embryologist, put them in someone who has a license. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we'll kick you out some extra embryos. Yeah. You know, we realize that, you know, our conception rates on our stuff's really high because we use conventional embryos, right? So we figure you should get one in three. Most people who buy embryos from us end up having two calves for every three embryos they put in as long as they were put in by a qualified embryologist. I'm not even going to say licensed, but qualified. qualified. And how we verify your qualification on your, on, your, um, on your embryologist is pretty simple. I can call down to your local area and call any dairy and go, hey, have you heard of this embryologist? And you know what the dairy's going to tell me? Oh, yeah, he's great. We use him. Or, oh, no, we've used him and we've had problems. Because the dairy industry uses so much artificial insemination and so much embryo transfer that they've got a good grasp on the good and the bad people in their area. Well, we'll look around us, Lane. Yep. Uh, so just, re- just cannons at Red Rock, right? Right. They've got how many family members that we know that live around us that are all artificially inseminating for them. And a lot of them. Right? These people are all family members, but they're all artificially inseminating for select sires for them. Yep. So, you know, we have a good group of people that we could call at any point in time and say, hey, have you heard of this person? I'm sure if I asked Sean, he could probably tell me a little bit about a lot of people. I don't usually do it because I think it's conflicting interest a little bit. Having Sean tell me if he thinks somebody else is a good embryologist. But he would. He would. He would. But I don't put him in that situation yeah. because I don't. I don't feel like that's that's something I should have him do. He'd be willing to do it. I bet. Oh, I do it in a second. But but that's what I'm saying, guys. The problem we have right now is that we a need to find what we want to do, right, Lane? Yeah. If you want to be a seed stock producer and you want to have big, thick, long, girthy bulls, or big, soggy bulls because you like the way they look, or or whatever your dream is, we've got to figure out how to get there for one. And just breeding willy nilly to make some money is not the way to do it. No. So have a plan and work your plan. Yeah, right? have a plan, work your plan, and, and that's with everything. If you're doing that with your cows, you're doing that with your home, you're doing that with your money, you're doing that with your life. You're going to be more successful all the way around. Correct. So Lane, now time for the sad part of our podcast this week. Uh oh, what's the sad part? So we went from 1,400 pounds in hanging weight to what? Um, Probably 950. So 950. So 
So thirteen. It was thirteen sixty what? Thirteen sixty-five. So yeah. so we're three hundred pounds short. Yeah. So this animal was brought into the into the feeding bunk the same day as our last thirteen hundred and sixty pounder. Correct. He is born from the same stock breeding. Mm-hmm. He was uh, reared at the same level throughout his whole life. Correct. He's never been sick. We pulled all the records on him. Yep. He's never had a day off feed. Never. And I didn't necessarily want him going as right now. I'll just be honest. I think he was on the hill and he looked bigger than Uh, when the the guys took him out. Oh, he's the tallest one. Right. He was was standing on the hill, right? Right. Or he was standing closest to the gate. Whatever. Um, That's one of the two, right? We had three of them that we had a very good idea what we were going to do with. And they took the fourth. And they took our fourth, Yeah. And it's okay. Like it's gonna be fine. I think he's he's been on feed eight hundred plus days. He's a month younger, so he's thirty four months and like fifteen or twenty days. I think we'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, we'll let you guys know next week, but I think we'll be okay. If not, we're gonna have to kill another one this week to replace him. Yeah. That's the reality. It is right, and, and we won't get rid of him, and we'll. And I was gonna our- have one killed for me anyway. Yeah, I don't but know. it's not. So is that why you said good help can cost you? So that's why I want to get into this. So <laughs> the butcher shop, uh, we're very fortunate we have good help. We do. Uh, overall, our help, I would take our help over almost anybody else's help, except Adam has a couple people that I would want. Yeah. Right? And we haven't been able to poach him. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 The problem is we all went to high school together, so we're... We kind of have a friendship for the last 40, you know, 30-ish years. And, and we want that saw. And, and I want a saw that he's got. So we don't poach his people. I'm not saying they'd come, but I'm sure I could offer them something they couldn't resist. But the problem lies, and this is it. No matter how much money a good person can make you, they can also cost you on the flip end. And and we've experienced it. Yeah. Um, several times, several times and, and, and multiple things. And it's nothing that are, that, are, that they do intentionally. It's the unintentional stuff that gets us. Yeah. Right. Like killing this, this steer versus another one we wanted. Right. Or dropping something on a saw or breaking a piece of equipment. Me and Lane just learned with our equipment. We have three of them, three of everything. So that when they break it, we can just wheel the new one in and then take the old one out and take it to Brent to get it fixed. Correct. We have a Brent. Everybody should have a Brent. Everyone needs a Brent. Ex-engineer that knows how to fix everything and can weld like you like beautiful welds first time around. And has all the machining parts yep. he needs in his shop. And, and he can machine anything. He can literally machine just about anything. And that's the hard, you know, with, with us, that's a luxury. It is. Like he can't, he's fixing lanes, um, antiquated saw as i like to call it it's antiquated until it gets the shop and then it becomes antique 19 what well this company started in 1921 right and the number on its serial number is like 1020 right so So we figured it's probably between 21 and 25. 25 yeah right um so it's antiquated right now now once brent gets this new five horsepower motor put back on it it'll be an antique a fully functioning antique. Yes. And, dude, and we were able to find 
all the, the parts original parts yep. and everything and we've put it together and it looks really cool and lane's excited because he remembers using these when he started butchering 40 time. years ago yeah so that's that's huge right you know and and here's the and problem it's, it's always it's always cool to go into a butcher shop with a retro that's what I tell people all the time. When I walk into a butcher shop and I see the new Hobarts and I see the new all the new stuff with the new square heads, it's kind of a letdown to me. Because when I was a kid, you'd walk in a butcher shop and there'd be a butcher boy or a biro or a Hobart and they had these big, beautiful cases and they're all oval. And we've actually been looking for one for quite a while, probably over a year before we found the one. Yeah, and it was... It was, it was in rough shape. Yeah, and we're going to have to put some modifications on right. this that weren't intended to be, to be able to fit the new motor and the new motor box and stuff to get it to run right. And, but because there are a lot of things they did to it that right. hurt it. And we call it we call this, you know, in the, in the car world, we'll call this a resto mod. Yeah. So we restored it, but yeah. we modified it to make it better. Correct. And that's what we're doing here. We're restoring the saw and making it better. I'm so excited. And and here's the big part. You start looking at some of these old saws, they're so heavy. That's the thing about that saw that makes me smile every time I see it. It weighs as much as a small small horse. Our new saw, it you can push it around with one guy. Yeah. This old saw, if it wouldn't have them big cool casters on it, there would it would be going nowhere. And it doesn't move willingly with those casters. Right. Right. And and the benefit is the casters make it higher for our, our taller saw guys. Yeah. For me and you, it's going to suck. Yeah. I just won't use it. I'll just use the old one. There you go. <laughs> I'll use the new one so I, can, I don't get in trouble. So one of the cool things about us putting this extra saw in, though, it's going to give Lane an opportunity to do something we haven't been able to do. And that is to have a boneless saw in the shop. And it's going to be able to... These... these Young men that we have cutting for us, I mean, they're apprentices. Right. Let's face it. They're, they're not to journeyman level yet. Nope. They have a lot to learn. Um, I would say that on average, if I was to break this down, so um, you probably need three to four years of active working every day to even be qualified as a, as a basic a, a journeyman. I would say so. You know, probably 10 years moving into that 15 before you would probably be considered a full journeyman or a master journeyman. Probably. Depending on your learning habits and skills, right? Right, right. But, but on average, five years. And a lot of that is developing the eye of being able to make everything look very, very nice. And the problem a lot of the shops around us have, and I'll tell you right now, even the big ones, the big plants... That's not a concern to them. They want to cut it. They want to put it in a bag. They want to send it out. Mm-hmm. We don't play that game at our butcher shop. Mm-hmm. We want it to look good in the package so that people can not only A, identify it, but be able to enjoy it and show people if they want. Yeah. That's why we use vacuum pack. That's why we use all the other things we're using is because we want people to have the ability to enjoy having our product. Or their product for all that intensive purposes when they bring it to theirs. And even if it's not really good beef, and we see a lot of subpar beef come through there, but even if it's subpar, it's packaged nice and it looks... Looks pretty. Looks pretty. 
And that's big, right? That's that's a big thing when it comes to anything dealing with food is eye appeal. You see it before you eat it. You smell it before you eat it. Those are those are super important things. And we wouldn't be able to do some of the things we were, were doing now without A, being able to make it look pretty, but B, the way we handle our, our, our coolers, our cutting floor. Like we, we take that whole bacterial growth thing to, uh, to heart and, and try everything we can to minimize bacterial growth, even in the cooler. That's why we have such a high flow cooler. So, and Lane's Lane knows when I walk in, if I'm going to say something or not about it. Right. Yeah. But like there's days he's like, you probably don't want to walk over there. And you don't want to go in the cooler today. And, and it's because I have a hyper a hyper sensitive olfactory. Yeah. Um, I can smell if he's had one in there for 14 days. I don't know what it is about it. It hits me just off off the note, and I can ask him how long his stuff's been in there. And if it, he's got stuff because somebody wants a 20-day hang, I can usually tell. Absolutely hate it when he puts buffalo in there, though. Oh, they smell bad from day one. <laughs> So, but okay, Lane. Anything else you wanna you wanna talk about today? Um, just one thing about good help can cost you. Yeah, they need to realize that good help is going to cost them. It is to keep them. Oh boy, to keep them motivated, to keep them wanting to do a good job, and it doesn't always have to be monetarily. No, you know. If you take your if you take your lead man out and uh, take him to lunch a couple times a month, right? And sit down and ask him how things are going and what does he see? What are the problems in the shop? Because even when I'm in the shop working, it's a little uncomfortable to have the boss there all the time, right? And they don't they don't want it. Just makes a a higher tension in the shop in the shop and it really gets high tension when i show up (laughs) (laughs) but but that that's that's his game he likes to play yeah but but anyway but but if you take them and you ask them how things going how's people everyone getting along what problems are arising what do i need to know about prime example of this lane what happened this week we had a individual they had a broken leg cow we went and got the broken leg cow and uh we we, we cut it and and the and the guy's pretty good customers of ours yeah he's around all the time because he's a dairyman and he has issues issues from time to time we have to go and, and, and he's got some some angus some f1 cows that he's bought somewhere but he breeds back to angus all the time yeah so we He's a good customer, and he called me the other day. He said, Lane, he says, I'm really concerned. I feel like there's probably a box or two of meat that's still in your freezer that wasn't given to me. Could you check? So I went in, and and there wasn't any more meat. And I got talking to our lead guy. Our lead guy. And he said, that was a really bad cow, Lane. I said, well... Tell me about it. He said, well, first of all, the broken leg was broken high up on the on the front leg. And so all that shot shoulder. Up, up in the femoral head. Yeah. 
All that moral head, I guess. Yeah. That well, would be... uh, it would be up in the front shoulder, oh, right? front scapula base. Yeah. And he said, and that whole shoulder was gone. That wasn't salvageable. enough meat to be salvageable. I said, okay. I said, I still think there probably should have been more meat. He said, but the background on that same side was terrible. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it looked like it had been hurt a long time before, and it was just absolutely full of scar tissue. And we have a policy at the shop, and Lane says it all the time, if there's anything weird, take a picture of it. Take a picture. And he did. And he did. And he said, well, let me send you these pictures. He sent me the pictures, and oh my gosh, the whole background was so full of scar tissue and mending of the tissues and knitting each other's in such a way, there's no way you wanted that in your ground beef. No, it'd just be straight gristle at that point. It would be. It would have been terrible. So my guys made the right decision, and uh, and with those pictures, um, I'll call Bryce tomorrow and say, hey, this is a, this is a, it's what a we deal. found, and send him the pictures, and these are the pictures, and that's why you didn't get as much ground beef as. You probably thought, well, it's still going to be a crappy conversation. Right. But at least we know what happened and we can show him and he's not going to like it, but it it is what it is. Well, and the problem is, too, is that... He's a businessman. He's a business guy. He's going to get it. Yeah. He gets it. He's He's done multiple other things. The one question I do have, though, and this is something that always interests me, what percentage of animals lane do we see... That have that problem. Not many. Like 5% or less? 5% or less. See, and that's that to me is something interesting in itself, right? Um, a lot of times we have animals, uh, all animals, right? Mm-hmm. Whether you're a breeding stock guy, whether you're a feedlot guy, we have animals that get hurt and we don't know it. Because they're just tough critters. And they might be limping for a few days and then they aren't yeah. limping anymore. Yeah. So what's happened in there? And, and that's what I always tell Lane. I go, we, the problem is, is we don't ever know what that animal's lived through. So that's why we started doing things like putting, um, taking pictures. Your butcher shop should take pictures of your carcass if there's something weird so they can present them to you. And you might not like it, but that's the reality of it. They're not out to get you. They're not out to hurt you. They're just trying to show you, hey, there was a problem. We didn't feel you wanted to eat your problem. So we took care of it. Yeah. So, well. Yeah, I think that's all. Is that's that, new in Wagyu this week. Is that, all, is that all you got? I think so. Okay, then. We'll see you next week here at What's New in Wagyu.